I hope you understand that this morning. I hope you believe that. I mean, I hope you trust that. I mean, that's the, that's the immeasurable weight of God's grace. I was speaking at Ozark Baptist Church Tuesday night as part of their revival, and I mentioned something in that message. So in the early days of ministry, I was always a bit reluctant to speak too much on grace, honestly, because I was fearful of what people would do with that, that people would misunderstand it or misinterpret it, you know, take it as some sort of license, really, to do whatever they want, that if God's grace is abundant and free and greater than my sin, then I guess I can do whatever I want with that. But, you know, the Apostle Paul dealt with that very same challenge in Romans chapter 6. How shall we, being dead to sin, live any longer therein? How do we, what shall we do now with this grace? I began to realize that, that you can't speak enough of God's grace. Whoever you are, whatever your situation is, if you would humble yourself today and throw yourself at God's mercy, you'll find grace there. If you resist him, the Bible says he resists the proud, but he promises grace for the humble. This week, probably, you have been reading about, seeing reports of, hearing rumors of revival breaking out out of Asbury and Kentucky and Lord willing, spraying to other places. Um, my friend and professor at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Denny Burke, wrote a little article about it with some thoughts and recollected the old hymn by Fanny Crosby. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And I pray and as I hope you do, that those marks of revival are true. And they'll take root, and they'll create real change, and they'll have sweeping effect, lasting effect. We've had a few experiences of real revival that have swept our nation in the past, that have changed not just people and those places where those people live, but really raised up a whole new generation of faithful Christ followers and leaders and missionaries and I pray that this would, too, have that same effect. After the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards, who is probably near the top, if not the top, of America's theologians, homegrown theologians, wrote regarding the scriptural evidences of a work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to pray for these things that he wrote as evidences. I want to pray for them for us. I want to pray for them for those students and their families and those people that are being impacted in Kentucky and that it spreads and pray that it happens here and happens among us, this sort of real revival. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word. We seek with our hearts the power of your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to challenge us, to convict us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to bring assurance to us, to teach us, to guide us. Father, we worship with your people. We gather as your family. Father, as your church, we want to be faithful to you and to your word. And Father, we want to see you move in our times. We want to see you repeat your works in our day. So, Father, I pray, as those who have prayed similarly for now some centuries, that you would raise the esteem of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, in our eyes, in the eyes of our community and the people around us. 
Father, I pray that a work of revival would ensue here that would discourage the work of Satan in us and so discourage sin among us. That, Father, as a mark of true revival, honest and real repentance would happen and the abandonment of sin. Father, I pray that revival would happen among us to the degree that it would cause us to have a far greater regard for your word, to be hungry for it, to be driven to it, to read it, to study it, to understand it, to do it. Father, I pray that this revival would come and would be marked by a spirit of truth that would stand against error and falsehood and would ultimately convict all of us of the gospel truths that we've sung this morning. That we are great sinners, but Jesus is a far greater Savior. By the sacrifice of his life, his perfect life, and his blood shed, we can have our sins atoned for. By his resurrection, we can have new lives. And Father, I pray that in this spirit of revival would come a spirit of love, of greater love and affection for you above all, and an outpouring of that love demonstrated by loving one another. And in this, all men would know that we truly are your disciples. So Father, we ask that you'd make it so. Father, you make it so there, make it so here, and all points in between and around. Father, for your glory and for our good and for the glory of your name among those that don't know you yet, Father, we pray for revival. And I pray that not just today, but you'd move our hearts towards this sort of praying for days and days to come. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Question for you this morning. Of all the things in the world that we could be talking about, why are we talking about elders? I mean, of all the things that are pressing on us, I mean, if you read the paper, if you, well, I don't know if too many of us do that actually anymore, that's kind of old. If you read an electronic device that has information that used to appear in a paper, then, then you know, and I say this not lightly, we live in a world that has gone mad. Our, our, our morals and our, our ethics have been so twisted and turned that the ground is moving so fast under our feet that we can barely recognize who we are in comparison to what we used to be. We live in a culture that doesn't value life, whether that's life in the womb, whether that's life of the elderly, whether that's life of an average person on the street. We've not only abandoned God's good design regarding creation and marriage in our culture today, we're actively warring against it. We're legislating against it. Sexual perversion and debauchery is so ever-present now in our culture that it's almost inescapable. And I, and I cringe sometimes at the thought for the younger parents in this room and the generation that you're going to have to raise your kids in. And what's possible, not only what's possible in our culture today, but what's prominent in our culture. Morally bankrupt secular doctrines like critical race theory, intersectionality, and all their many offshoots are tearing at the very fabric of our culture, creating conflicts like we haven't seen before and divisions that we've never experienced before. We're seeing people deconstructing their faith and abandoning it at numbers that are unprecedented before. Nationwide, the church is declining in ways we haven't seen before, and not just church attendance or numbers and things like that, but entire denominations and groups we have seen just in these last several years abandoning key doctrines of the faith, clear marks of orthodoxy, things that have been unquestioned for 2,000 years. But as I prayed 
just a moment ago, there are some glimmers of hope. I mean, it looks like perhaps we, we hold out real hope that maybe the beginnings of real honest revival are starting to break out in a few places among a few people. Maybe college students will lead the way, much like happened in a few genuine revivals of the past. Maybe, a, as I prayed, a whole new generation of servants, disciples, missionaries, ministers, and just godly people are going to spring up. So in the context of all of this, why would we talk about something that seems so mundane or routine as church polity, ecclesiology, or elders? Let me begin this way. How many of you are familiar with Aesop's classic fable, The Ant and the Grasshopper? Raise your hand. The Ant and the Grasshopper. Disney took, the, took that fable and made a whole movie out of it. So if you don't know Aesop, you probably know Disney, and it's a bug's life. But it's built on the same story. If you've never read it, I'll give you the short version of it. It's summertime. The weather's great. There's lots of things that you could be doing to have fun, and the grasshopper just wants to have fun. He wants to play his violin. He wants to enjoy life. And he sees the ant going by him, hardworking, carrying his things, preparing for the winter, and he tries to invite him to come, no, play with me, enjoy with me, but the ant will have nothing of it because he's getting ready for the days that are to come. He's getting ready for the hard times. The essence of the story is this. If you prepare yourself today, if you, if you lay the right foundation of preparation today, it will protect you for whatever is to come down, down the road. So, you know, there might be a lot of other things we'd rather be talking about today than elders. Topics that are more interesting, things that might be more exciting, things that are more prominent in the news, things that might feel more pressing, more necessary, more emotionally enticing. But I will say this, if we're going to be well prepared as a people, as a church, for the sort of things that are coming our way, the sort of tides that are growing and it'll soon be crashing on us. If we're going to be prepared to face the onslaught of an enemy who works powerfully in the skill of deception and discouragement, if you agree with me that we live in the most challenging times for Christians, at least in our lifetimes, if you believe that a return to the Scriptures and to the truthfulness of God is the only hope for us and for all the people around us, if you think that God's church is going to have to stand against an evil current and stand for what's right, and if you can acknowledge that the current culture of the American church is largely the result of abandoning discipleship and disciple-making for shallowness, easy believism, entertainment, and honestly sometimes just plain foolishness and relevance, and if you want to be part of a church that weathers this cultural religious storm, if you want to be part of a church that preaches Christ and His Word faithfully without apology, guarding us from error and also promoting the truth, error from within and from without, if you want to be part of a people that are equipped to grow to maturity in Christ per Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to be prepared to stand in the evil day per Ephesians chapter 6, all the while, doing what lots of Christians are doing today, praying for true and real revival, then, if those things are true of you, you will see and know the value of elders. And so I'm going to drive your attention this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And I want to do it this way. I want to start with an overview, and then I want to make a biblical case, and then I want to tell you in very practical terms why this matters to each and every one of us on a real life, right down to earth level. So let's start with an overview, just a few thoughts to remind us of the text and, and how to understand it best. Remember, first of all, that Paul's letter to Timothy is just that, a letter. And he did it twice. He wrote him a letter and then wrote another letter, and those are very, you know, curiously titled, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Paul didn't write Timothy a letter that had chapter and verse headings. It's not just a, a collection of theological statements that are disjointed. It's a letter. And so as the early church would have been reading this, as Timothy would have read it, as it would have been shared with the church at Ephesus, it would have been read as a letter. And so you and I, we have to understand it and interpret it accordingly. The natural ebb and flow of this, okay? So for instance, we finished out chapter 2 last week, and we saw what Paul wrote under apostolic authority, not personal opinion, I do not permit, and he talks about the role of women in the collective assembly when the church gathers for worship. What is allowed, what is not allowed, how does the church function in its collective assembly, who's allowed to do the teaching, and he says that's men, and then immediately in the letter, not now we're going to something different, now we're not flipping to another chapter, not on, now not on to something new, but in the continuing theme of the letter, those who teach are, now we see, elders. And so there's, there's a natural flow to all of this. Now when you see the terms, I just want to def define them very quickly. I don't want there to be confusion between the words elder, or as he uses the word overseer, or as the word that we often use or employ, pastor. Those are all used interchangeably. They're used interchangeably in scripture. They're used interchangeably in theology. They're used interchangeably in, in Baptist history. They're used interchangeably in the context of what I'm sharing with you today. These are interchangeable terms. So biblically speaking, elders are pastors who are overseers. So the person in the church who you most often call pastor, me, I'm a paid elder. I have responsibilities primary to teaching. That's the primary task. But I don't do it alone. I don't do it without um, accountability. I don't do it without input. I don't do it without support. I don't do it without a responsibility to others. But others that we see in the church that we call elders are typically unpaid pastors. But the role and responsibilities are the same. They're the same. Our elders don't function as an advisory council. They're not an executive board. They're not a board of directors. They function as pastors, pastoring people with three primary focuses. Ministry of the Word, ministry of prayer, and care for the flock that God has entrusted to us. Word, prayer, and care for the flock. One of the main condemnations that God levels against the shepherds in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 50 is that 
They've scattered their flock. But God promises he'll gather them back together. So he tells, Paul tells the elders in Acts, keep watch over yourselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So elders functionally work in the word, prayer, prayer for the church and its people and its ministries, and the care for the people that God has entrusted to them. An elder is not a separate class of Christian, serious and unserious. You know, let's look for those people in the church who are real serious Christians. They take this stuff for real. They, they read the Bible. They actually do it. They believe it and try to live it. That's not what an elder is. The Bible has no such distinction between serious Christians and unserious Christians. Now, maybe modern pop Christianity will have a distinction between those who are Christian and those who are really disciples, as if discipleship and conversion can be separated. But they can't. No, elders are simply to be exemplary Christians. Not a different sort, not a different class or category, but certainly exemplary. And if elders are expected to be perfect, then you'd have to fire all of them. They're not perfect examples, just to be exemplary. So let's just set a standard. So consider some of these qualifications again, and I won't spend time going in-depth on these. You've heard me teach these before. Consider the qualifications and tell me if these sound any different than what you think God would expect of any healthy Christian. Is he above reproach? Is he, is he faithful to his wife? Is he sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable? Is he able to teach? Now, that one is the only distinction between the list of requirements for deacons and elders. It sets them apart in terms of requirements for the task. That elders have to be able to teach people, stand in front of people and teach the word. Does he control his temper? Does he control his appetites? Is he dominated by his own attitudes or opinions? Is he hospitable with his resources, his life, his home? Does he lead his own family well? Is he a seasoned believer? Has he been walking with the Lord for some time? Are there marks of real discipleship, faithfulness for a long time in the same direction? Is he well thought of by outsiders? In other words, not does everyone like him, but does he have the respect of integrity? That whether or not we agree with him, we know where he stands and what he believes, and he's the same publicly as he is in his religious settings. All those qualifications that are listed there those sound like healthy Christian people to me. And so again, elders are simply to be exemplary Christians. Now, let me set the biblical case for this just for a moment. Elders are biblically historical. You don't have to look very long or very far to see the natural pattern of God's order of things emerging in the Old Testament. Sometimes when people say, you know, I don't, I don't understand the need for elders. You know, I, I don't see that in Scripture. My first thought is that you haven't read these Scriptures because they're so clear. It starts in Genesis, even before the Israelites were taken into captivity. Genesis chapter 50, verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father. With him were all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. There's already a group emerging that has influence. By Exodus chapter 3, the Israelites are functioning during the captivity. 
And elders are already there. They're already functional. So when God calls Moses to go speak, who's he send him to first? Not to the people at large, but to the elders who are exercising leadership and influence and authority over the people. He says, go and gather the elders of Israel together to them and say. And by the time the nation of Israel is functioning under God's law, and God's given him the moral law of the Ten Commandments, and then all the civil law that began to follow in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, we see by Exodus 24 an official category of elders. By Exodus 24, you have a team of 70 elders selected as a governing body. And in Numbers 11, we see God's specific call for them to serve with Moses while they're in, in the wilderness, a way to go in the promised land. This is Numbers eleven sixteen. Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. So by the time that Paul is reminding Timothy of elders, he's telling him of something they already knew historically. This is common to our past. This is what Moses employed. This is how the nation of Israel functioned. They functioned under the leadership of elders. Elders are therefore biblically normal in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, we see the history. In the New Testament, we see the, the normalcy uh, of elders. Number one, elders were put in place in every church or to be put in place in every church. So you have verses like Acts 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. The natural pattern was as a new church was birthed because new Christians were made there, Christians make churches, not vice versa. So when Christians are made, then churches develop from that. In each of those churches, the pattern that God established was put elders there. Or Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So certainly the implication is there. If there were churches in those areas, these new churches made up new believers that didn't have elders yet, maybe there weren't qualified men yet, then you work until you develop them until they were, and you put elders there because putting it into order included putting elders in place. God's order for his church included elders. And of course, you can see from that number two, there's a plurality of elder leadership in each of those locations. Elders plural in every church singular is Acts 14. Elders plural in every town singular in Titus 1 5 or Acts 20 17 from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders plural of the church singular to come to him number three they were they are biblically exclusively male we saw that last week in 1st Timothy 2 12 and there's a clear distinction between the roles and responsibilities and the existence of the offices of both elder and deacon the New Testament ref recognizes two church offices elder which includes pastor overseer and deacon and there's a difference between the two philippians 1 1 paul and timothy servants of christ jesus to all the saints in christ jesus who are at philippi with the overseers and the deacons and that's why there are two different listings and two different types but here's what i want to really drill down on for us today elders are beneficial to the church they're beneficial to the church I didn't start with elders are beneficial because we don't have elders for pragmatic reasons. 
I've had conversations with other pastors in this area and in other places who were interested in finding out what our model was of moving to an elder-led congregational church model for, for government, consistent with what the New Testament teaches. And sometimes I'll caution some of these guys, don't do this for pragmatic reasons. In other words, don't do this because you think it's just simply going to be more effective or it's going to be easier for you or you're going to enjoy the system more. No, it has its own challenges and its own limitations. And, 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 and in fact, it's imperfect because the people involved in it are imperfect. You'll never be part of a perfect church until you're in that one with a capital C in the new heaven and new earth under the lordship of Christ completely. And we're all under his rule and reign. That being said, it's still beneficial. It's not primary to our purposes. Our primary reason for doing it is because we're convic convinced and convicted it's biblical, but it is beneficial. So get ready, I'm going to go faster with these because I put a list of 10, and I'm not going to elaborate on each of those because if I only gave you two minutes on each, that'd be another 20. So, you know, that's just basic math. So write fast. Okay, you ready? This is not a comprehensive list, but it's a pretty good list of all the ways that elders benefit a biblically shaped church. Okay, you ready? Churches with elders better model biblical authority and accountability. They better model biblical authority and accountability. It's a, it's a reminder that we all are, by God's design, under authority. And the authority that we're under, ultimately, as Christians, is the Word of God. And the authority that elders possess in a church is not the authority of an office that they've been elected to or chosen to. It is not the authority of their personalities or their leadership abilities or their age or influence or any of those things. It's the authority of the scriptures rightly applied. And the role and work of elders is a reminder to all of us, we are under the word of God as our sole guide for life and doctrine. And churches with elders better model that because we're saying, here's what the scriptures teach us. Here's what the scriptures require of us. To function as a church so we're going to employ those things we're going to be under that authority and we're going to hold each other to it number two churches with elders are better protected now again the word better not perfectly not absolutely but certainly better protected from abusive or immoral leadership and some of that simply has to do with the accountability though i function as um, a leader among our elders I don't function above them in any sort of authority. When we gather and our elders meet, we have equal and we have shared authority. We have shared influence. And we have agreed that we will submit to one another. We will submit to the group, to the decisions of the group. And that, and that protects the church sometimes because it doesn't mean that I can't ever be abusive, but it means that hopefully, Lord willing, if our elders are functioning properly, the abusiveness of me would have a very short shelf life. Or that if a it doesn't mean that I could never be immoral. It just would ideally mean, and it would mean in our context, that that immorality would quickly be checked and ideally would even be prevented because of the accountability that exists there. So you're better protected by that. Three, churches with elders are less likely to wander off into doctrinal error. They're less likely to wander off into doctrinal error. Remember a church I was real familiar with in town where I served previously, Functioned like most Southern Baptist churches did. Singular leadership, pastoral authority model, pastor setting the direction in terms of doctrine, teaching, beliefs, practice, all those things, and people expected to follow. And I remember a, a, a certain tent revival came through town, very Pentecostal, charismatic, and certainly questionable in the teachings there, the doctrine and teaching. Invited by some other pastors, this pastor went, participated in it, was taught in it, had some 
supernatural experience where he thought he was slain in the spirit, began to speak in tongues, began to have other um, physical outward demonstrations of it. Well, that sort of thing doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't stay in one place and begin to bring those things back to the church where he began to teach these things contrary to what the vast majority of people in the church, leaders, deacons, otherwise believed or accepted to be true from the scriptures. You can imagine the sort of impact that has on the health of a church. You can imagine the sort of people that it attracted, the sort of people that it pushed away, and you can imagine the internal splits that begin to develop because of that. And eventually made ministry there untenable for him. In a church with, with elders, there's the protected safety of other godly men saying, I'm not sure that's what the scriptures teach, or I'm sure that's not what the scriptures teach. And there's a built-in accountability there. And so, Lord willing, those adjustments to doctrine and teaching are not corrections once they've gone far afield, but they're small adjustments along the way. They're fixes and tweaks with accountability. And don't think that that's not a conscious thing, too. I, I don't preach under the fear of the elders or worry necessarily what they might be thinking, but I certainly preach with the awareness of this must be verifiably true per the word or else it's not going to hold. Number four, churches with elders are less likely to do stupid things. And I say that only because sometimes as pastors, we do stupid things. I've done stupid things in ministry. Sometimes I wish, looking back over 26 years of pastoral ministry, someone would have said to me, maybe in kinder words, hey, that's stupid. Don't do that. That's not wise. That's not prudent. Not all the decisions that we make are clear-cut black and white in Scripture. Sometimes they just come down to wisdom and prudence. And churches that have elders have those safety net of counsel are less likely to do stupid things. I think that's self-apparent. Number five, churches with elders are better able, consequently, to lead with wisdom. The flip side of that is wisdom. Ideally, when you're praying for and you're thinking about those that you're going to nominate to serve you as elders and those that you're going to give your support to by a vote and an affirmation to. You're praying and looking for those who demonstrate wisdom. Not just doctrinal clarity or scholarly theological prowess, but how do I do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reasons and wisdom there. Number six, churches with elders are better able to solve serious problems. Very better able to solve serious problems when real problems come to the church or real failure happens or real crises come. It's not unclear where the responsibility lies. It's not unclear who has been entrusted by the congregation and empowered by the scriptures and filled with the spirit for the purpose of protecting the church, guiding it and overseeing it. Number seven, churches with elders are more likely to be stable and consistent. I've had this conversation many times. Um, it goes without saying for any of you who've been in Calvary for longer than my tenure here, which is now um, 11 years. If you've been here 15 years or 20 years or 25 years, you know that philosophically churches often change, sometimes widely change, like pendulum swings between pastors. Search committees, by their very nature, are employed by the church to bring about someone who's going to fix things, sometimes to do things differently. Um, often I see it in conversations I have with churches who are in search processes and they're looking for some counsel or advice. They look around, they say, you know, we don't have very many young people. Therefore, what should we do? Let's get a young pastor because that's the magic wand for getting young people to come. 
or whatever the answer may be. Well, we, we have someone who, you know, who, who doesn't visit well. well. Let's find someone who loves to visit. We have someone who doesn't teach well. Let's find someone who loves to teach, and we swing. And often churches zigzag philosophically, practically, and even theologically. Well, the good news of having elders, elders help chart a course for the church and protect the culture of the church and the philosophy of the church. And as I've said to many people, particularly if you're coming through for membership and you're interviewing, I can tell you with confidence that if something were to happen to me tomorrow and I no longer am able to fulfill the pulpit, for whatever reasons, physical, moral, spiritual, or whatever, if I get hit by a truck crossing the street, Calvary will continue. The pulpit will still be filled. And I can pretty much count on next week you'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And we'll keep going. Personalities may change a little bit, the flavor may change a bit, but the philosophy won't change because we embrace this together as a people. It's consistent. Number eight, churches with elders are better able to experience the giftings and insights of multiple teachers. I'm not trying to shine their shoes or flatter them, nor do I want to steal their eternal reward. But aren't you glad sometimes that you get to hear other people teach? That you get to hear the, the wisdom and scholarly approach to scriptures that Dan brings when he teaches you? That you get to hear Reagan's passion for people in the Word when he teaches you. That you get to experience Charles' insights and wisdom and handling the text as he teaches you. That you get to hear other staff like Tommy or Randy or our elders when they teach you. This is valuable to you. It's valuable to us. It's valuable as a church. Number nine, churches with elders are, in general, more comprehensively cared for. Because you don't have one single person functioning as a chaplain for hundreds and hundreds of people. But you have a team, a core of caregiving leaders. One of the things we're laboring hard for is, is that, and praying for is that God would raise up more elders among us, primarily for that third purpose. Well, obviously, ministry of the word remains and ministry of prayer remains, but that ministry of care, we want to do better and better and better at that, caring for people. We want to know our flocks well and where our people are and how we can minister to them and care for them. And number 10, churches with elders are better able to develop new elders and share them with other churches. You know, in the past, it would always be a discouraging moment for churches like ours, churches I grew up in and served in, that when a staff person that you love stands up and reads a letter of resignation, you know, I, I long for the day when as a church we'll be able to celebrate, not that we're losing good staff, but that we're sending out good people to other places, that we're raising up, that we could be, as a church, a net exporter of spiritual leadership to other churches and ministries, and not a net importer, that when we need staff, we're developing them from within. When we need leaders, we have them. When we need elders, we've got them. When we need new teachers or ministry leaders, they're springing up right here among us. They're being trained and developed. And when other churches need people and leadership, they can look to us and say, yes, we've got people we can send you right now. And we've got people ready to plant, we've got people ready to serve, we've got people ready to go, and we can celebrate exporting what God is doing here. So those are some, those are some benefits. So let me give you a quick summary and a conclusion. Elders are lead by example. That's why the moral qualifications are first. The character of an elder is more important than the competency of one. So when we flounder in our competence, when we stutter or we stammer, or when we mess up a little bit, we don't do that intentionally, but I hope you'll value character even over competence. God does. And so character is first. Elders lead by example. But elders do labor by teaching. 
I think you can see, I hope you can experience, I know that we have internally raised the level of teaching. If you could be a fly on the wall sometimes in our staff meetings, you might find it a bit interesting on Tuesdays when we dissect, critique, and evaluate what was taught the Sunday before. That's always fun. But we also open up the text for what's coming next and offer our thoughts and input and observations, questions regarding the text. It raises the level. Elders love by shepherding. By caring for the flock that God has entrusted to us. And by the way, that's not just making visits when you're sick or seeing you at home or being friendly. I, I hope you will never make a distinction between teaching for love and shepherding for love. Part of our shepherding love is teaching well, to teach you the truth. Part of our shepherding sometimes is saying things that make you uncomfortable or that confront or challenge um, because that's love. Um, that's what the truth does. And the truth with love requires that. And elders are called by God to live with integrity. Integrity. You wouldn't expect someone to lead a business improperly or unethically or be publicly immoral and somehow be able to switch, the, switch it all up and lead in the church effectively because integrity is required. So, I want you to write this one conclusion statement down. It's not in your notes, but I want you to just write this down. Healthy elder leadership is a tremendous advantage to any church. It's an advantage. And I hope that each of us as members of the church would receive those that God has given to us as elders, staff and lay elders, volunteer and paid, as gifts of God for us for our advantage. Because the Bible teaches that elders are to teach the word, Set a godly example, oversee the affairs of the church, those things we've all covered. 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 5. That's what elders are to do. So what is the church supposed to do that recognizes them as a gift from God and an advantage to them? Scripture therefore calls all Christians to obey and submit to the leaders of our churches. And those leaders are in turn accountable to God for how they lead. So there are really three things that the church is called by Scripture to do to the elders that God has given. Submit to them, or obey them, submit to them, and, and pray for them. Obey, and submit, and pray. And that comes straight from Hebrews chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. It's a pretty important task pretty heady responsibility obey and submit to them they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you clearly implied in hebrews 13 17 is that elders properly functioning in the life of a healthy church are an advantage to the people but if you resist if you disregard if you don't support in prayer, if you do none of those things, if you do the opposite of obey, submit in prayer, and pray for them, then guess what? Then this is of no advantage to you because God has given it for your advantage, for your health and growth and protection. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. If you want an elder verse, let it be that one. When you think of us, when you think of our names, when you think of our ministries, pray for us. Pray that we would have a clear conscience and that we act honorably in all things. Pray that we're doing what God wants us to do in an honorable sort of way. So if I were to summarize Hebrews 13, 
verses 17 and 18, I would say what this demands most from the church is trust. It's trust. It's not blind trust. It's an informed trust. It's a trust in the fact that these are people that you know that have lived and worked and served among you. It's an informed trust in that these are people whose lives you've examined and found them suitable for service. It's an informed trust in that you've heard them, them teach and you've watched them lead and serve and, and love. But it's the sort of trust that means you won't always know everything that they know. They can't share everything that they've shared amongst themselves. Take a difficult church discipline case, for instance. You can't share all those things. It's not beneficial for those that we would love to restore to the faith or restore to the church. It's not healthy for the church. It's not healthy for the community. Sometimes we say, and not in any sort of cultish way, you're going to have to trust us on this, but not one person. With a team of seven or eight or nine or ten or twelve or whatever it may be. Trust. Big question. I thought of this one. It's kind of heavy, and I don't mean to be quite so in your face as it may seem, but it's a question you have to answer for yourself. This is kind of a rubber meets the road sort of question. What if I don't or can't trust the elders at Calvary Baptist Church? Well, I would say this. Perhaps you should be at a different church. I mean, not all elders are trustworthy. And to say that God employed elders as his model and his norm, and that that's been true historically in the Old Testament, it's normative for the New Testament churches, and we practice that today, doesn't mean that all those people who serve in those roles are trustworthy. If you should find... Did you have biblical grounds or moral grounds to not trust those in leadership? I would be in a church where I could. But if you find yourself in that category of just, I'm not able to trust elders, that system, hypothetically in any place or any church, then I would also say you should probably be in a different church because this is the biblical norm and bi biblical pattern. And for reasons that I've shared and many that I haven't, we think it's the healthy and most beneficial pattern for a church to follow. So again, you and I, to recap, we could jump at everything right in front of us, respond to every immediate need or situation. I, I could hit every hot topic. But today I'm dealing with elders because this is part of storing away for the winter. It started build, it's part of building a stabler base. It, it's part of being well prepared for all the mess that still has yet to come. We see it coming like a storm cloud, but it's going to get worse and worse. Are we going to be ready? Are we, as a, are we as a church going to be well-discipled? Or are we as a church going to be committed to the Scriptures and stay there? Or are we going to chart a course in terms of ministry philosophy and approach and run it faithfully no matter what? Or are we going to love each other well and care for each other well and, and make membership meaningful so that we're not just a, a gathering here on Sunday mornings for a religious show or program, but that we are a real spiritual family we have people who know us, love us, or are involved in our lives. Are we going to accept hard teaching as well as encouraging teaching? Are we going to accept correction as well as we seek direction? If we do those things and want those things, then this is the pattern that God has established for it. And remember the premise you heard at the very beginning of the service. It's 1 Timothy 3, the very center, 14, 15, those verses. This is what I'm leaving so that you function well how you live rightly in the household of God, which is his church. How do you do this as a church? And this is to our good, to our benefit. So pray for us. 
pray for us. Pray that we could do what we do with joy, not with groaning. Pray that what we do would be to your benefit. Pray that the church would be healthy and strong as a result. And pray that God would be honored because we're faithful to his pattern. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your word which guides us. It is not always easy for us to follow. Sometimes the understanding of it challenges us. Sometimes, Father, forgive us that it goes contrary to what traditions we have developed apart from it. Sometimes it hits us at the point of our emotions or our desires or even what we think is common sense. Lord, I pray that we would always be being renewed by it, reformed according to it, and reshaped by it. Lord, so we'd be faithful to you. And Father, I pray that we would embrace the, the gifts you've given us as our, as our benefit. As a benefit to all who lead, as a benefit to other pastors and elders, that we have the, the accountability and the relationship and the support and the input and the shared work of one another for the congregation that we would serve well. But Father, that we would be in every way we see your word saying us to be, we'd be that, we'd be faithful to that. And so, Father, we just ask that you bless what you've commanded as we seek, seek to honor you. Father, now I, I pray for those in this room, though, Lord, these songs that we have sung today about your goodness and grace, this is just one aspect of it. You not only offer us salvation in Christ, this new life, but you give us the means in which to live it. And the context where we're designed to live at your church, with your people. More than just fellowship, more than just teaching, but a genuine commitment to one another for each other's good. You've made us into family, and Father, we thank you for that. As a family, I pray we would function well, we love well, and Father, we would flourish well. So to grow us, Send new ones to us, Father. Raise up new ones among us, Father. Save many. And Lord, may we disciple each other well. May we encourage each other well and support each other well. Love each other well so that we can all finish together well. Father, may those things mark us as a people. And Lord, I pray you be well pleased. Father, move our hearts to obedience today, to a right response to your word in all things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.